before we get going, I just want to say how much of a joy it is to be a part of Holy Trinity. It's just immense. Um, in these last weeks, I've had opportunities to have lunch with people, to have dinner with people, to have coffee with people. And the more I get to know particular stories, personal stories, the more of a wonder that it is to be a part of this community. So many threads of grace, so much uniqueness here. So I want to say thank you for those of you who have shared your stories with me and just the joy and the privilege that it is to get to hear that and share that with you. Uh, this morning marks the fourth Sunday of Epiphany, seven Sundays in Epiphany. The season of Epiphany begins with the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it ends with the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. The only two times, as I've said, in the Gospels where God the Father speaks directly from heaven about his Son. The baptism, he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. In the transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Epiphany is a season where Jesus, in a sense, is revealed to us, where we are invited to hear and to share the Father's perspective and passion for his Son. As Frederick Dale Bruner puts it, he says, the one fact that God the Father wants believers to know above absolutely all other facts in life is just how much we have in Jesus. That's what the season of Epiphany is about. And this morning, we're invited to contemplate the presentation of our Lord in the temple in particular. You'll notice that we have a little bit of kind of liturgical, chronological whiplash happening here. So last week, Jesus was inaugurating his ministry. <laughs> Behold, the kingdom of God has come, and now we're going back about 30 years to the presentation of the Lord in the temple. And then next week, we will fast forward another 30 years. But the centerpiece of this scene is this marvelous little song by Simeon. Now, O Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. See, whatever it is that Simeon is singing about, he's saying it's something that he can rest his whole life on so that when death comes, it can be in peace. Now, as you may know, the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke are constructed around this repeated cycle. It's a threefold cycle. You end up, you get a promise, then you get a fulfillment, and then you get a response. So the promise is someone comes and says something really great is going to happen. Uh, the fulfillment is that great thing actually does come to pass. It's a reality. And then the response in the early chapters of Luke is always a song because the fulfillment of the promise is so great that the only proper response is to sing. And so four times in the early chapters of Luke, we get songs. First, it's Mary's song, the Magnificat. My soul magnifies the Lord. And then it's Zechariah's song, the Benedictus. Blessed be the God of Israel. And then it's the angel's song, the Gloria, glory to God in the highest. And then it's Simeon's song, the Nunc Dimittis, now, O Lord. Now, O Lord, you are letting your servant depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, a light for the Gentiles and glory for Israel. And notice how the two go together for Simeon. I've mentioned it many times, but we have to mention it almost every week when we read the Gospels, is the Abrahamic covenant. God says, I'm going to bless you, Israel. 
And then it's through you that you are going to be a blessing to all the nations. My blessings will reach all the families of the earth through you in particular. And Simeon is saying, as the child Jesus is presented in the temple, we have light for the Gentiles coming, and we have glory for Israel. He's seeing it in Christ, the salvation that is prepared in the presence of all peoples. And so the question arises, what is this blessing that God has promised to his people? And what is this blessing that he has promised that will touch every family of the earth? In other words, what did Israel and the world hope for and long for and wait for all this time that Simeon is saying, now it's happening in this child? Now, Luke has an interesting answer to this question. He seems to answer this question by kind of showing us the lives of two Israelite greats, Simeon and Anna. I think of them as like the Dallas Willard and Mother Teresa right day, you know. The Dallas Willard and Mother Teresa of ancient Israel. That'd be a good book. One of you should write that. <laughs> and in both cases, uh, notice how Luke takes some time to tell us about these people. He wants us to know that they were particularly faithful people. And he especially wants us to know that their faithfulness was expressed in waiting in lots of waiting. One author put it quite poignantly. He said, God's blessing was not a continual smorgasbord of titanic experiences for them. God's blessing was just one thing, and it was 80 years in the waiting to be near to Jesus, to see the salvation of God. Faithfulness expressed in the waiting. So what was it that they were waiting for? In the case of Simeon, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel is what we see. So read with me, starting in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So this was like a Holy Spirit-inspired waiting. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that we would not, he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ or the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's anointed one. And he came in the Spirit, Spirit three times, into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to him to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God and said, Now, O Lord. Now notice the progression. You get... We're told that Simeon waits for the consolation of Israel. He then sees the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. He then takes that child up into his arms, and then he blesses the Lord. So there's this act of recognition and affirmation that the Holy Spirit inspires in Simeon to see in this child, not just any child who has come into the temple to be dedicated, but to, be, to see the consolation that God has sent for his people. And we are told before Jesus ever embarks upon his ministry of blessing and healing and teaching and preaching the kingdom of God, that whatever his ministry is going to be about, it is going to be about a work of consolation, a work of comfort. Now, some of you may know that the word used for consolation here is paraclesin. Jesus is the paraclesin of Israel. It's the same root word that Jesus used in the upper room discourse in John chapters 14 to 16 when he describes the Holy Spirit as the paraclete, the one who is called to come alongside and comfort and help 
The word is broken down into two parts. You get para, alongside, and then the root of kaleo, to call. So literally, it's to call alongside. So the paraclete is one who's called to come alongside to help, to encourage, to strengthen, to console God's people. And it's no surprise that this word is really significant, for it's in the book of Isaiah that the whole book of Isaiah hinges on this word. Some people divide Isaiah into chapters 1 through 39, and then chapters 40 and following. In chapters 1 through 39, God's telling his people, look, you need to turn from your sin and your idols and return to me, or else it's not going to go well for you. Israel doesn't listen. And so foreign enemies come, and they devastate Israel, and they bring them out to exile. And then starting in chapters 40 and on, God tells Israel that judgment's not going to be the last word on them. He wants to bring them good news that even though they have been obstinate and have not listened to him, he's going to come after them. He's going to redeem them. He's going to bring new life, new relationships, new home, new creation. And what is the word that Isaiah and God through Isaiah uses at the very beginning of chapter 40 when it is the hinge between judgment and the glories of God's grace to come. It's comfort. Comfort, comfort my people, says God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's this image of the abundance of grace that will comfort God's people And that's precisely what Simeon has been waiting for. He has been waiting for that hinge to happen for God's people. He's been waiting for Isaiah 40 to be fulfilled. And now he holds this child who is the consolation of God's people, the tender comfort of God. And I don't know about you, but I, this week, have felt like I need this comfort and consolation. And I'm getting the sense that our culture and our world needs this comfort and this consolation as well. It's been a week since a helicopter crashed in the hills of Calabasas, very close to our own home, killing nine people, Kobe Bryant and his 12-year-old daughter being among them. And there's been this sense here in Southern California that people have had to come to -to face-to-face with the brevity and the fragility of life, that life is like a vapor eventually, and that even the mighty fall. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. It's been days since we've had to come face-to-face with the fact that government processes sometimes, instead of doing more good than we would hope, reveal deep divisions that lie at the heart of our corporate life together. And that those divisions express deep anger and deep animosity and sometimes deep injustice. And that we're all too prone to be concerned with choosing and towing party lines rather than matters of truth and goodness. And I think God says to us, comfort, comfort my people. And I'm sure for some of you, it's just been hours since you've experienced the tensions that just arise in any personal relationship in general. How difficult it actually is to do life well with people. Like to do life well with people to love people, to forgive when one's been wronged, to let go of resentment, 
to hold on to hope. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. You see, what I think Simeon recognized and what he was affirmed and what he would want us to hear this morning is that the arrival of this child means the arrival of a whole new era of divine consolation, of comfort, of the tender presence of God. And in the case of Anna, she was waiting for something more than consolation. She was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Verses 36 with me. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Keep in mind the Old Testament context again. If Jerusalem is redeemed, that means God's blessings are going to the nation through Jerusalem. That is why in the book of Acts, when Jesus says the Holy Spirit will come upon you without power, he says, you will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It gets to the ends of the earth, but it starts in Jerusalem. See, what Anna is recognizing and affirming is that the child Jesus is an agent of not just consolation, but of liberation. So he's going to have a ministry of liberation. So that word redemption, which is latrosin, lutrosin, speaks of a word in the ancient world of being freed from imprisonment or being freed from slavery in particular. So what she is recognizing and affirming is that Jesus is not just going to come and he's going to console and he's going to comfort, but he is going to release. He is going to bring freedom. That's why just a couple chapters later on from this in chapter 4, Jesus is going to stand up in in one of the synagogues and give his inaugural address for what his ministry is going to be about. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Notice how much Luke emphasizes the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me, and here it is, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus is coming to console, yes, but he is coming to bring liberty and freedom. I think this is what Jesus is on about in his Sermon on the Mount. I've been spending a lot of time in the Sermon on the Mount lately, personally. And you know those really hard-hitting sayings that Jesus has where he says, like, you have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. And there's just a myriad of them where he says, you've heard it said this, but I am the ante and I say this. You see, I think that's Jesus actually coming to set us free in a deeper way than we could have ever imagined before. Jesus has come to set us free from the power of lust before it devastates and destroys relationships through immediate gratification and objectification. Jesus has come to set us free from the power of unchecked anger before it just devastates and destroys relationships through cynicism and resentment and lashing out. Jesus has come to set us free from the power of flippant speech where our yes turns to no and our no turns to yes And we never know what people are saying because that devastates and destroys relationships through inconsistency and illusion. Jesus has come to set us free from the power of retaliation, 
which devastates and destroys relationships by responding to wounds with wounds. The list could go on. Jesus has come to bring consolation, and he has come to bring liberation, to set people free. And as our reading in Hebrews says, even to set people free from the fear of death. And so Simeon says, now, O Lord, your servant can depart, can die in peace, for I've seen your salvation. It's profoundly good news, and this is what Luke wants to show us by holding before us the two Israelite greats of Simeon and Anna. Jesus has come to bring consolation and liberation. Now, that's really good news, and we would expect everybody to respond to that news with warmth and hospitality. But there's a couple surprises to our passage. And this is where I want to end, is with these two surprises. And the first surprise is that not everybody is so excited about the consolation and liberation Jesus wants to bring. So verses 33 to 35, this is what Simeon says to the parents. As the father and mother marveled at what was said about him, Jesus, Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is anointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. <laughs> That's quite the follow-up <laughs> to the Nunc Dimittis. <laughs> yeah. um, our, our liturgies don't tend to include that little blessing at the end <laughs> so much. He's saying to Mary and Joseph, your son is going to be opposed. And what parent wants to hear that. Like, there are going to be people who don't actually want to receive the comfort that Jesus has come to bring. And there are going to be people who don't actually want to admit that they are in bondage and need to be set free by this King and this Lord. And the fact is, is that Jesus is going to suffer immensely under the pressure of this opposition in his ministry, and it actually is going to lead him to the suffering of death on a cross eventually. But what Simeon says here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed even in this opposition. Like as Jesus is opposed, the evil that he has come to redeem will be exposed. The light will shine in the darkness and expose it for what it really is. And not in order to shame it, but in order to heal it. But notice how the gospel is right in the midst of this kind of devastating news. People are going to oppose Jesus. Mary is going to watch her son be crucified, drained of the very blood that she gave him. And yet in the midst of that, there's gospel. The child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And notice the order of that, falling and then rising. I love the way one person said it. He said, in the world, it's rise and fall. So you get the rise and fall of the Third Reich. You get the rise and fall of the business tycoon. You get the rise and the fall of the movie star. But with Jesus, you get fall and then rise. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So Jesus is saying is that, in the midst of this opposition, the kingdom of God is actually coming in. I often experience this with people in kind of evangelism and getting to know people, neighbors. It's actually not the people that 
seem kind of most um, peaceable and tolerant of the gospel that tend to be the ones that accept it. It's the people that find the offense of the gospel so deep that actually end up being the ones, in my experience, that end up getting gripped by it eventually. Because they get it. They feel the offense of it. They feel the challenge of what Jesus is on about in the kingdom of God. They feel how radical the transformation and the grace and the healing is that he wants to bring in their lives. And they resist it. But eventually, that grace gets them. There will be falling and there will be rising. So that's the first surprise of our passage is that not everybody's going to welcome Jesus, but even in the midst of that, there's good news. And the second is that the holy is expressed in the ordinary, in going home and in growing up. One of the things I love about uh, Masha Shmakov's painting here is all of her paintings that we've had so far have been these vibrant, brilliant colors. And that will continue next week. But all of a sudden, when it gets to the presentation of the Lord in the temple, things get so muted, in a sense. Now, there could be that sense of the purity of the moment, the stillness and peace of the moment, this kind of burning bush experience that Susan was talking about with the shoes off. But I wonder if it's also being depicted as somewhat of like a domesticated scene. I mean, they're in the temple, but they could have used a lot of color to (laughs) express the glory of the temple. But it's this domestic simplicity. And we get this in the ending of our passage, verse 39 and following. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, we're told, they returned to Galilee, to their hometown of Nazareth. And the child grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of the Lord was upon him. This grand presentation moment of the Lord in the temple, this grand revelation by two of the Israelite greats of the ministry of the Lord, his consolation and comfort and the liberation that he is going to bring into the world, this grand revelation of how he is going to be opposed to the point of suffering and death on the cross, and he will eventually rise again. And what is the response to that? Well, let's go home and let's raise this child. Let's begin the slow and patient work of raising a child. Remember, Mary and Joseph are still in the early days here. They are probably like physically and emotionally exhausted by now. (laughs) I always describe the first two months of having a child as like living in a dungeon. (laughs) It's what George Herbert calls in one of my favorite poems of his, heaven in the ordinary. I've talked to you about this book, um, Every Moment Holy, which has a series of liturgies a couple times. And one of the things I love about that book that I think first caught my eye when I was just reading the table of contents, which is riveting, is there were two liturgies written for the changing of diapers. And I thought he gets it. And he has this beautiful prayer for the liturgy of changing diapers. First of all, I was like, who's reading liturgies during changing diapers? But (laughs) second of all, he, he had this sense of, Lord, Help me to clean and wrap my child with care. And in doing so, to cultivate a culture of compassion in our home. So that that culture of compassion would raise a child of compassion. And so that that child of compassion would influence a world to be a world of compassion. I just loved how he connected the dots from changing diaper 
the culture of the home, to the character of the child, to the culture of our world. It's heaven in the ordinary. So I actually want to end with a prayer. Last week, I read a prayer for those in the marketplace, and this week, I want to read a prayer for the children of our congregation. It's written by St. Augustine. O Heavenly Father, I commend the souls of our children to you. Be their God and Father, and mercifully supply whatever is wanting in me through frailty or negligence. Strengthen them to overcome the corruptions of the world, to resist all solicitations to evil, whether from within or without, and deliver them from the secret snares of the enemy. Pour your grace into their hearts and confirm and multiply in them the gifts of your Holy Spirit, that they may daily grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And faithfully serving you here, may come to rejoice in you hereafter. Through the same Christ our Lord.